Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Do you want to thank R&B Car Company? Locations in South Bend and Warsaw, R&B Car Company are your used car experts. Just, I'm going to give you some fair warning. You're probably going to be ticked off in the first segment of the, the first half hour or so of the show. Uh, but first, before we get into that, uh, the Twitter board has unanimously approved Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover bid. So 100%. It means uh, going forward, it looks like he's going to take over Twitter, which, again, we assumed really it was down to Elon whether or not he wanted to back out because they were withholding information. And as a result, uh, they were they were forced to acquiesce. They provided him the data that he, he wanted. They moved forward, and the board has unanimously approved SpaceX and Tesla CEO Elon Musk to take over the company. Again, that deal is $44 billion, which, for the record, is way more than Twitter is worth. So everybody has stock, and Twitter still gets a profit. Uh, but uh, this was officially filed with the SEC today, and they believe that this is essentially going to be the end of it. So just giving you the uh, the updates on that. All right, cue my audio. I want to play this audio. This is from ABC 11 News. The things that we learned. See, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad I didn't get to this yesterday. I'm kind of glad that I didn't because today it is so much worse. I'm just going to play you a minute of this newscast from ABC 11 News. This is in Texas. And then we're going to add on to it because there's additional information beyond this. And there are new questions about the law enforcement response in Uvalde as the first pictures from inside Robb Elementary are now surfacing. The Austin American statesman obtained surveillance video from the May 24th shooting showing officers had firepower and, prote- and protection than previously thought more. During a hearing at the state capitol this morning, investigators say officers were inside the building within three minutes with enough firepower to confront the shooter. Instead, they were given orders to wait. We do know this. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. The school police chief who gave those orders said he made the decision in an attempt to preserve life. The police chief is expected to testify today. Now, of course, that chief is now a city council member sworn in in a secret ceremony. So nobody showed up and ruined it. The number of times that we have been lied to during this case is staggering. The day of, and we carried the press conference live right here on the show. The day of, we were told that they were confronted by a school resource officer right away that they were engaging with the gunman within four minutes. That's what the guy said. Within four minutes, they were engaging with the gunman. But the gunman was able to barricade themselves into a classroom, and and that's, you know, they didn't have any ballistic shields. They didn't have any rifles. They didn't have the ability to get into the, the room. The door was locked. They didn't have the ability to kick in the door or to engage from the perimeter outside, firing into windows or what have you. They did everything they could. We ended up finding out just a couple of days later that, There was no armed resource officer on campus. Nobody engaged the shooter. There's still an open debate about whether or not the door was unlocked or if it was left open or what have you. There's still some serious questions about the door. Uh, There's the the story has changed from the law law enforcement perspective virtually every week. And the things that we have learned this week are infuriating because, again, Part of the reason that the chief said, I'm not going to send you guys in. You don't have a ballistic shield. Okay, that's not an excuse, but I did float the idea. All right, ballistic shields aren't that much. Maybe everybody should get a ballistic shield because they aren't aren't that much. I'm not not saying that they're cheap, but in the grand scheme of things that, that law enforcement has at their disposal, ballistic shield is not that much. I mean, for crying out loud, have a making party and have the officers of the department make ballistic shields, which you can do at home, and it's fairly cheap for you to make them yourself. 
Are they ugly? Yep. Do they work? Yep. So maybe if you're a police officer and you've got a school anywhere near you, maybe this is something that you do on your own. You get a ballistic shield. But now we find out that they had ballistic shield. I'm staring at footage of them with a ballistic shield in the hallway. We were told they didn't go into the room because they didn't want to get cut to pieces by the gunman because they didn't have a ballistic shield. Which, again, doesn't make any sense because you still go into the room. But they chose not to because they didn't have a ballistic shield. But they did. It's right there on the surveillance footage. Within three minutes of getting there, they've got a ballistic shield shut up, set up, and they're taking uh, they're taking cover right behind the ballistic shield. Okay? So another narrative here, completely gone. Now things get a bit worse. In the midst of all of this, Uvalde City Council meeting on, on the school shooting. Reporters were trying to witness a hearing with testimony about the shooting and to see surveillance footage from inside the school on the day of the shooting, Okay, which we ended up getting leaked. More on that leak in a little bit because the leak is now getting weird. Okay. Reporters were then told to leave. Now, what would happen, ladies and gentlemen, what would happen in a a world where, I don't know, Donald Trump or something asked reporters, kicked them out? What would happen? Reporters were told to leave the meeting at the Uvalde City Hall on Monday night. They were told that the Texas legislators who were present, along with law enforcement, were, and I quote, I quote, intimidated by the presence of reporters. What? A chaplain and parents also We're told to leave. What in the world is going on? Your kid is involved in a shooting and you get kicked out of the hearing on the shooting because the the legislators and law enforcement who were there felt intimidated by your presence? No, that wasn't intimidation. That was shame. It was shame and it was guilt. It wasn't intimidation. You let their children die and you know it. So chaplain and parents were also asked to leave, preventing from hearing testimony about the shooting at Robb Elementary that stole the lives of 19 children and two teachers. As he was exiting, a chaplain said, we want the truth of why we didn't protect our kids. While another father said that his children were scarred. Reporters were trying to witness a hearing being held by the committee from the Texas House of Representatives to hear testimony about the shooting and gather information about the apparently lackluster police response. Which, I mean, there has to be some credit given here because a lot of information has gotten out to the public about what happened yesterday and then some of which is happening today. But you kicked reporters out, you kicked parents out, you kicked a chaplain out. I, I don't even, how, how do you even respond to that? It gets worse. As bad as it is, it gets worse. Got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Yeah, Uvalde gets worse. All of the stuff that we've learned about Uvalde get worse. We've already given you several updates that make make the entire situation much worse than it was just a couple of days ago. By the way, you can watch the live stream. Go to rumble.com slash Casey the host. Rumble.com slash Casey the host. The head of the Texas State Police, Stephen McGraw, McCraw, excuse me, not a G, a C, was speaking to the state Senate committee. After they kicked the parents and the reporters and the chaplain out on Tuesday, where he heavily condemned the response by police during the, the massacre which again, took uh, the lives of two adults and 19 children. He said that the officers on scene could have stopped the gunman within three minutes. Within three minutes. Now, the information that we had yesterday is that they had a ballistic shield on scene at the time that the shooting was starting. And that immediately called into question everything else that we were told about the shooting before. Which again, the ballistic shield is, is a nonsensical reason not to act, but that was the excuse that they gave. But now we know 
that they had a ballistic shield in that hallway and they could have breached with a ballistic shield and they chose not to for over an hour. Of course, we, we end up finding out that the door wasn't even locked. Remember, they were waiting for a key. Nobody even tried to open the door. It wasn't locked. So you've got the head of the, uh, the Texas State Police saying, we could have ended this thing in three minutes. Who knows how many people would still be alive if they had done this in three minutes. During his testimony, he said that it was the teachers of Robb Elementary and not law enforcement who should be given praise for their heroic actions one month ago. He said the police could have acted faster than they did, having enough firepower and protection to do so. There is compelling evidence the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything that we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre, which is the audio that we played for you earlier. Officers had weapons and body armor, and the children had none. He also commented on the shooter's actions in the months prior, saying that the gunman was moving toward path a pathway to violence and had taken on the demeanor of a school shooter, which is true. We know that. Now, we've got a leak. This is how we know about what happened inside that school now. We got a leak, okay? The leak got out the surveillance footage. And there's a lot of people who thought the surveillance footage was fake. It's not fake. There's a lot of websites taking down the surveillance footage right now. Why are websites taking down the surveillance footage? It's a great question. The city of Uvalde does not appear to want to answer questions on the school shooting that occurred on May 24th and stole the lives of 19 children and two adults. To that end, they have hired a private law firm to argue that they have no obligation to release those records. This comes as journalists and parents were prevented from attending a meeting where surveillance footage from the fateful day was shown. Of course, that got leaked out. Lawyers for the town argue that the records, including body cam footage from officers, photos, 911 calls, emails, text messages, criminal records, and additional materials could include highly embarrassing information, according to a letter obtained by Vice. Um... So that's all public information. You realize you have a you have a government of a city saying you're not allowed to have public information because um, there could be some embarrassing stuff on there. So what? Too bad. The city has received 148 public records requests and argues that they should not have to respond to any of them. Concerns abounded over the police mishandling the situation. The city has not voluntarily released any information to a member of the public, according to the attorney for Uvalde, Cynthia Trevino, a Texas attorney general, Ken Paxton. Uh, that she wrote it to uh, Ken Paxton. Trevino of the firm Denton, Navarro, Rocha, Bernal, and Zek was seeking to was seeking a determination from the Attorney General Paxton as to what information the city is required to make public and what information they can hold back from public criticism. Uh, no, if you can get a FOIA request, if any of these documents are FOIA compliant, you release them when you get a FOIA. That's simple. And their excuse is, well, we don't want to. It might be embarrassing to us. I guarantee you it's embarrassing to you. You screwed up bad and innocent people are dead because you messed up. It's pretty embarrassing. Trevino and her firm are being retained by the city despite Uvalde having an in-house attorney. So not only does the city have their own attorney, They've now gone into the private sector and have retained a law firm outside of their own attorney. And that law firm is basically spearheading all of this. Not much confidence in their own on-staff attorney, is it? That attorney is trying to suppress communications from that office from being made public. So the staff attorney, the in-house attorney for the Uvalde government, is basically telling everybody, no communications that we do here can be made available to the public, even though it is, of course, susceptible to records laws. Uvalde said that their city offices had received 148 separate public records requests and is undertaking to argue that they have no obligation to respond to any of those, which, of course, a lot of people thought that maybe I and people like me were making too much of this. But, you know, during COVID, you had so many local governments and, of course, the federal government straight up tell you, we're not going to give you the records that we have that you're entitled to under law because we don't want to. And they use this this umbrella terminology like, it, you know, under the 
the guise of the public good or public health. Even though you're entitled to the information, we're not going to give it to you because it might cause harm and all of these other things. That is exactly what's happening right here. And don't think for a second that they're not going to argue that precedent was set during COVID when school districts and local governments and even the federal government were able to withhold data from people in order to go ahead and get something done under the guise of the public good. Don't think for a second they won't make that case, because they certainly will. You know, Right now they're arguing, well, it's really embarrassing for us to go ahead and release the information that makes us look bad because we really screwed up at our job. We got 19 kids and two teachers dead. The letter went on to contend that because of lawsuits pending against the city, Uvalde and its police would be exempted from releasing a wide variety of records. No, that's not how records laws work. Trevino claims further, this is the attorney for Uvalde, that some of the records could contain, quote, highly embarrassing information. I'll bet they do. Could you imagine being the attorney having to actually write this. And I know that she's doing her job, okay? But can you imagine actually sitting there and going, all right, uh, the reason that we're not going to release information that might embarrass the department is because the information that we would release contains embarrassing information. Imagine that. Uh, Let's see. And materials that are not of legitimate concern to the public. Doesn't matter. They're public record. These materials, the letter states, could expose methods, techniques, and strategies for preventing and predicting crime. This is another one that they have used throughout COVID. They also use this in Arizona uh, to fidget around with the election machines there. When you have the sheriff there lying and telling you that they couldn't release the router information because that would that would you know go ahead and give away techniques and methods of law enforcement. No, it wouldn't. I gave you my expertise there as a former network systems administrator, and then I brought in somebody who did forensic police uh, police networking. They said that argument was nonsense. It's not true. Police do not want to release information on police officer training guides, policy and procedure manuals, shift change schedules, security details, and blueprints of secured facilities, stating that these could be used to reveal methods, techniques, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Uvalde police response to the shooting carried out by a lone gunman is currently under investigation. Um, I, I just, I'm getting very angry about this entire situation. I mean, I was angry from the very beginning, but I'm getting so mad because you've got a bunch of people who frankly let innocent people die and now they're covering it up because it might be embarrassing. So much so that they're not even letting the parents of victims in the hearing. The officers inside the hallway of Robb Elementary wanted to get inside classroom 111 uh, and 112 immediately. One officer's daughter was inside. Another officer had gotten a call from his wife, a teacher, who told him that she was bleeding to death. Two closed doors and a wall stood between them and an 18-year-old with an AR-15 who had opened fire. But again, they didn't go in. They didn't go in. MSC News time is 3.31. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations, creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that last a lifetime. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I'm your host, Casey Hendrickson. Do you want to direct you to rnbcarcompany.com? Take a look at RNB Car Company, your used car experts. Also, you can go to rumble.com slash Casey, the host. Watch the live stream if you want to hang out with us. The Supreme Court has ruled that Maine tuition program uh, violates the First Amendment for excluding religious schools. Of course, you heard the Fox News break about this. So the Supreme Court ruled six to three today that a main tuition assistance program violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause by excluding religious schools from eligibility. The program provides tuition assistance for students without a local public school to attend private institutions. I have to say this part again slowly so the Jeffrey Tubins out there can understand what this case was about. Maine's tuition assistance program provides tuition assistance for students without a local public school. So instead of going to a private school with the tuition assistance program, They can now go to a private school that is also religious. So even though I completely and totally support using tuition assistance programs to go to private religious schools, because 
Obviously, that is your constitutional right. Beyond that, this case was about places where there isn't a public school, and I am watching people collectively lose their minds about it because if you have private schools in the area, okay, you could pick the non-religious one or you could pick the religious one. So what? Who cares? You have to have tuition assistance regardless. It's not taking any money away from public schools in this program. Of course, no no voucher program or school choice program does take money away from public schools. Public schools always come out ahead. Maine's non-sectarian requirement for its otherwise generally available tuition assistance uh, payment violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, which is always the thing that people forget about when they tell you that uh, there's separation of church and state. They always ignore the free exercise clause. As Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in the opinion in the case, this is Carson versus Macon. Regardless of how the benefit and, and restriction are described, the program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of their religious exercise, which, of course, is discriminating against somebody's religion. So, yes, while this case was particularly about Maine and areas in Maine that don't have uh, any public schools, and you being able to choose a, a private school that is religious as well, that meets the qualifications of the state, uh, it has broader reasons because of the ruling. And, and because of the ruling, you know, as they've said, like you have a right to go to send your kid to a, a private school that is religious. As long as that school meets the requirements to be an educational facility in the state, then you're good. If you don't allow somebody to get your tuition assistance or what have you to go to a religious school, then you are violating that family's free exercise clause. Uh, well, the free exercise rights for the free exercise clause of the Constitution. So really very good ruling, very solid ruling. Uh, there isn't anything to actually be upset about unless you're a nincompoop. I don't know how else to really phrase that for anybody. But nonetheless, here comes nincompoop Jeffrey Tubin over at CNN. He's the guy that got uh, put on indefinite leave from CNN because he, you know, pleasured himself on a Zoom meeting in front of coworkers. That's that's the guy. Still has a job. He didn't get fired from the other place that he worked. So Tubin comes out. He has a hissy fit. I'm not going to play you the hissy fit that he had on CNN because, frankly, it doesn't matter. Um, but basically, he went out there and was claiming that this, that this would somehow break down the wall of separation with church and state and the Establishment Clause. Uh, first of all, separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. It's not a real thing. Okay, This is from a letter. It has been overly exaggerated. However, the Establishment Clause says that the government of the United States will not establish a religion of the United States. This has nothing to do with that. Not even remotely in the ballpark of being the same time topic not at all this i mean you're comparing a hot dog and an orange here i don't know what on earth are you thinking that this would in any way shape or form have anything to do with the establishment clause allowing a family to choose a private christian academy and a private jewish academy and a private muslim academy and just a private non-denominational academy or a private secular school does not in any way shape or form establish a religion anybody who says otherwise their medulla oblongata is wrong. Jeffrey Tubin went on to Twitter, where SCOTUS is heading. All parents get vouchers, and they can send their kids to public or parochial schools. Separation of church and state is a vanishing concept at the Supreme Court. Uh, and again, separation of church and state isn't a real thing. This also wouldn't apply. And frankly, the first part of his tweet, all parents getting vouchers so they can send their kids to public or parochial schools, sounds damned amazing by me. If you have a parent who has a kid going to a crap school, give them the ability to send their kid to a non-crap school. Oh, I know what the problem is, because then nobody wants to go to South Bend School Corporation anymore. Darn! They all want to go to every other school system around South Bend schools 
that is much better. Even the crap school systems outside of South Bend schools are much better than South Bend schools, which is why South Bend schools keeps losing hundreds of students every year to surrounding school districts. They don't want you. They do not want you to be able to send your kid to a good school if the school they go to now sucks. And they're trying to make the case that somehow this violates church and state because some of those schools could be religious schools. So they can be Jewish, Muslim, Christian, any other faith that they want, as long as they meet the academic requirements of the state. That's not violating the Establishment Clause, because to violate the Establishment Clause, the United States government has to go, we are now a Christian nation, and the only religion you're allowed to participate in is Christianity, which, of course, is not at all at play here. The amount of mental gymnastics and straight-up stupidity it takes for somebody to jump to that conclusion is staggering. It actually takes way too much energy. I don't know how people have that much energy to jump to those conclusions. I don't know. Now, with that said, great ruling by the Supreme Court. Every parent should be able to have the ability to choose to send their kid to the school that best suits their kid. And I always have to add this caveat because there's always some idiot out there. And I always call them idiots because, well, this is a dumb thing to say. What about the busing situation? Yeah, if you send your kid because you choose to, you send your kid to a good school across town, guess what? You're responsible for getting them there. Taxpayers aren't. You are. That makes sense. Nobody's ever argued otherwise. You know, if you don't want your kid to go to the school at the end of the block because it's not a good school and you want to send them 40 minutes away, you get up 40 minutes earlier and you take them to school. Taxpayers don't do that. It's I don't know why always comes up. They think it's a gotcha, but it's not a gotcha. Now, with that said, great ruling by the Supreme Court. However, Gretchen Whitmer, she's got other plans for Michigan. We'll talk about that coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. So while the Supreme Court got a great ruling about school choice, Gretchen Whitmer and her Board of Education, they're trying to kill off school choice in the state of Michigan. Democratic Michigan Governor Gretchen Heil Whitmer and her state's Board of Education are opposing a ballot initiative already passed by the state legislature that would provide vouchers for more than 1 million students to attend the school of their choice. The State Education Board adopted a resolution on Tuesday against the Let Michigan Kids Learn ballot initiative, which is similar to legislation used in dozens of other states and would allow families to use tax credits to send their children to private schools. If it receives around 340,000 signatures, the proposal will be included on the November ballot without the governor's signature. Whitmer in October had vetoed bills containing the school choice tax credits, which had been passed by the Michigan House and the Senate, saying that they needed that they created tax shelters for the wealthy. What? Tax shelters for the wealthy. Imagine using that argument to deny poor minority kids who benefit the most from going to private schools the opportunity to get a better educational life. What an amazing, amazing bit of tyrannical thinking. Democrats and members of national teachers union organizations have consistently opposed school choice initiatives And the reason that they do is because it's less money and less kids who are in the public school system, less teachers. If you have less teachers, well, then you have less teachers union members. And if you have less teachers union members, you have less dues being paid to the teachers union. And if the teachers union has less dues, then the teachers union doesn't have enough money to give to their politicians that they have in their back pocket. Get it? Like I said, this is a gym membership business model. Get as many people as we possibly can. I have been over the research on this 
countless times over the years. We have pursued a quantity over quality teacher system in our in our country. The reason that they want you to get class sizes down is because they want more teachers. More teachers pay more union dues. The more union dues that the unions make, the more money and more political influence they have to reign over politicians. It's this cyclical thing. We know from the research, from the science that is consistent over and over and over again, a good teacher in a class that allows problem children to be removed from the classroom environment does not need to have a small class size to be successful. It is just not a real thing. It is a make-believe thing based on old data from way back in the early 80s that's completely outdated and the methodology was flawed from the beginning. Uh, Let's see. Joe Biden's education department drew fire in May when it proposed to cut a federal funding Cut federal funding for some charter schools. School choice and educational voucher programs are supported by one form or another by more than 65% of public school parents. So again, people who are in public school, the vast majority of them still support some form of voucher school choice program. The Mackinac Center for Public Policy has also found school choice alternatives are more likely to serve poor minority student populations in Michigan, which is something that we have talked about extensively on this show as well. So when Gretchen Whitmer goes out there and straight up lies to everybody that this is a tax a tax shelter for the wealthy, considering all of the data that we've gone through over this, which shows that, no, this is what best benefits minority students. They're the ones that benefit the absolute most. And again, there's ways for you to do this stuff where super ultra rich people don't get a benefit. There are ways for you to do that. Do I advocate that? No, but you can certainly do that. Uh, let's see. Michigan Superintendent Michael Rice said that the Michigan Student Opportunity Accounts Program would devastate public schools and reduce state revenue by $500 million in the first year. No, when Mackinac Center for Public Policy Director of Education Policy Ben DeGroo argued looking at only the revenue impact obscures the program's overall fiscal effect. True. Again, they try to make this case that when the student leaves and takes a portion of the money that they that that school would get for that student being in there, and they take that to the private school, while the rest of it still goes to that public school, the public schools argued that they have had a funding cut. No, you didn't. You got free money, and you don't have to teach the student. No, None of your resources are going for that student, yet you got a little windfall, a little kickback. You're the ones that get the benefits, as I've explained over and over how the funding works on this thing. If it were up to me, you would take 100% of the state and federal funding that your child gets that goes to the public school, you could take that anywhere you wanted. But that's not how these programs are drawn up. And so they love to tell you that they lose money and they've been the funding cuts, they've been defunded. That is not true. It's not even remotely true. It's a straight up lie, to be honest with you. Good more coming up. News Talk 95 3, Michiana's News Channel. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. I want to thank R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend and Warsaw. R&B Car Company are your used car experts. You can find them online at rbcarcompany.com. Bit of funny news here. The Democratic National Committee has been forced to make a price slash. So uh, get your get your wallets out. If you want to have a photo taken with Vice President Kamala Harris. You can now get that done at a much cheaper price than you could last week because the DNC has had to slash prices for the photo op with Harris because of weak demand. Tell me the Democrats aren't freaking out about who they're going to run in 2024 right now. Remember, the plan was Biden two years, Kamala Harris comes in, Sly P. Buttigieg in that VP slot. You groom them both. If you're lucky, Kamala can eke out 10 years, right? But nobody likes Kamala. Not many people like Pete. This may be the only product in America that's getting less expensive. 
<laughs> the DNC is slashing prices for a photo with Kamala Harris. Tickets for a photo op with the VP at the Women's Leadership Forum started at $15,000, but it failed to sell enough tickets and is being postponed. VP's June fundraiser in Cali is charging $5,000 for a photo. Man, that's uh, a pretty big cut, ladies and gentlemen. Friendly reminder that Eric Holcomb, I always have to remind you, I always have to remind you of the Chinless Ones campaign. Eric Holcomb campaigned on raising the gas tax to fix our failing infrastructure. By the way, how's he doing? He's in his uh, second term. How's he doing on the infrastructure fixes in the state of Indiana? How, how, how improved are our infrastructure with all of the new tax revenue that he has generated with his increase in gasoline taxes with help from Republicans at the uh, the state level. Anybody? Is the infrastructure much better? I mean, not around here. Maybe maybe other places in the state if you travel. I don't know. So Indiana gas tax will reach a record high in July. Drivers looking to pinch a few pennies will want to fill up in the waning days of June and not after the turn of the calendar to July. That is when Indiana's gas tax will climb from, I think it's at 56 cents now, to go up to 61 cents. Isn't that nice? The July tax rate will exceed the June rate by 5 cents. According to the Department of Revenue, Indiana's state gasoline tax automatically adjusts with the price of fuel itself, and higher gas prices from the oil industry translates into higher tax rates. Right now, the average price per gallon of regular unleaded gasoline in Indiana is 513, though some local stations are back below $5 per gallon. Not going to lie, I was pretty stoked with my 483 at Costco yesterday. So the state's Democratic Party has called for suspension of the gas tax. Governor Holcomb, meanwhile, has initiated an inflation relief plan that would distribute payments of $225 to residents under the state's automatic taxpayer refund law. Uh, this builds on the initial $125 payments taxpayers received last month under the same policy. I don't think I got that. I got to go go back and look. That or my wife stole it, but which is entirely possible. Both are very, very plausible. But, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you take a look at this and it's like, hey, we're going to we're going to go ahead and get rid of inflation. OK, this is Holcomb's idea of getting rid of inflation. We got inflation for a myriad of reasons. But let's be honest, COVID Keynesian economics is the main reason. Right. We handed out a bunch of free money because we artificially shut down the economy. And because we, we decided to go Keynesian economics on everybody, I told you at the very beginning when they started doing it, I said, look, I understand why they're doing it. The government's forcing you to shut down. They have to pay you to live. Okay? I prefer that they didn't shut you down, but if they're going to do it, they've got to pay you to live. You can't just force people to not be able to earn a living and then abandon them. But we're, at some point, we're going to pay for it with inflation. And I told you whoever the next president was going to be, whether it's Trump or anybody else, we we're going to pay for it with inflation. Here we are. So Holcomb's, Holcomb's great idea to fight inflation is more Keynesian economics, which caused inflation. Never trust a man with no chin. Keep telling you this. You can trust a man with three or four chins. Never trust a man with no chin. So you are going to have... Uh, the most expensive gas tax. And for the record, this is just the Indiana portion of this, okay? I want you to understand something. 61 cents is just Indiana's portion. That's not the full portion. That's just Indiana's tax. Every single gallon of gas, 61 cents, goes to the state of Indiana. Then you got the federal stuff on top of it, just so you know. Now, remember, I didn't tell you this story. A bunch of people made fun of it. It's hysterical. I figured everybody else was talking about it, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't burden you with hearing about it again. Remember what the Biden... The Biden plan to fix gas prices was for all of you. Remember what it was? It was to send you a, a debit card. Remember that? We're just going to give you a debit card 
instead of just putting the money in your bank account like we've been doing for the past two years, we're just going to send you a debit card. The problem is that you can't get debit cards because the stupid little microchip thingies are in short supply. So the supply chain issue largely, largely, but not exclusively, caused by our inept government also prevented you from getting fuel assistance, which is something that was definitely caused by our government. So one bad policy prevented you from getting relief from another bad policy. Just want everything crystal clear on this. In case you didn't know about it. The White House officials exploring sending Americans rebate cards to offset gas costs ran into another problem, the chips shortage, which meant US the US couldn't physically produce enough cards to make the plan work, even if lawmakers tried to do it, according to sources. It's clown world now. Now, Biden, I'm sure you heard yesterday, we were playing it on the news. I didn't talk about it, but Biden is considering finally supporting a gas tax holiday. Now, what's so funny about this is that he announced this, I think, yesterday morning that he was finally considering a federal gas tax holiday. The reason it's so funny is like two days before, one of his officials in the White House said, it, and I'm, I'm not making this up, said it would not lower the cost of gas to do a federal gas tax holiday. Does, does anybody want to crunch the math on that? If you're not paying the federal taxes per gallon, then the price per gallon would go down by that amount of federal taxes and therefore be less than what you'd be paying with it. Now, could that could that potentially affect inflation? Sure, absolutely. So there could be an argument, I guess, on the back end somewhere, some way down the line. The inflation will still come back to bite you. I suppose that it's certainly possible, but you had a White House official go out there and tell you a federal gas tax holiday will not lower the price of gas. Yes, it will. That is the very definition of what a federal gas tax holiday is. But Biden is considering supporting one now, mere days after his own White House said it wouldn't actually lower the price of gas. Will it be noticeable? I suppose it depends on the vehicle that you drive and how much every dollar really counts in your budget. If you fill up for 100 to 150 dollars or more, you're probably going to notice it. If you're filling up with, you know, 30 to 50 dollars, you probably won't notice it all that much, but it's still going to be there depending on how much you drive. That's, of course, going to be a big factor. How many times do you fill up? So anyway, this is Fortune magazine. To counter the sky-high prices American drivers are facing at the gas pump, Former Vice President Joe Biden said Monday that he was nearing a decision on whether or not to support a temporary pause on the federal gasoline tax ahead of the July 4 holiday weekend. I hope to have a decision based on the data that I'm looking for by the end of the week, Biden said. So by the end of the week, you're supposed to hear about this, okay? That would shave off about 18.3 cents per gallon, although it isn't guaranteed that all of the savings will be passed on to consumers. The current nationwide average cost of gas hit $4.97 a gallon on Tuesday, According to AAA, in at least 15 states, including California, Idaho, Indiana, and Michigan, the average price was $5 or more. Woot, Michiana. Both of us made it on that list. But it would also require Congress to act. The former vice president does not have the authority to implement the tax on his own. Uh, With equally divided Senate and Republicans not likely to play ball, it's not clear a federal tax holiday could even be implemented. Now, here's the thing, though. I don't know about that because um, some Republicans don't like it. Some Republicans do like it. You know, in the Senate, it's going to be a little bit trickier to get it done. Uh, but the House, I think you've got enough Republicans probably on board. But, you know, again, it, it's it's one of those things that while the federal tax is still there, that's 18.3 cents per gallon, whereas Indiana's gas tax is 61 cents next to 56 cents now. So which one would you feel a lot sooner? And, and of course, Holcomb will tell you, well, no, this goes for infrastructure. No, it doesn't, because the use tax for the gasoline tax is one of the, one of the taxes of the several that they have. The use tax goes to the general fund. It doesn't go to infrastructure. So he's lying. But again, you know, at least we have, you know, high speed rail and flying cars, and perfect roads without any potholes. 
and really smooth, nice pavement that, you know, even the most sketchiest of motorcycles can ride in the state of Indiana because of the massive amount of revenue that has been generated by the Indiana gasoline tax hike of Eric Holcomb and Brian Bosma who is now no longer in the legislature, but at least we have that amazing infrastructure that is the world of of the envy of the entire world, not just of the Midwest, but of the entire world. So thank you for your sacrifice and making sure that we had the best infrastructure in the history of infrastructures with Holcomb's gas tax. We got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. It is a good question, though. Can Michigan's power grid stand up to the heat? Well, it depends. Is Gretchen Whitmer going to visit every power plant and talk inside of it? Because then it could just recycle her hot air. Uh, but other than that, probably not. Yeah, probably not. Michigan's in trouble. We've talked with, uh, well, not with, but talked about some of the executives on energy in the Midwest. And they cover large swaths of Indiana and Michigan and Illinois. They're not confident that they're going to get through this summer. They just are not. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see. But if I were all of you, I would make sure that I had my generators ready, tuned up, maintained, ready to go. That includes myself. My generator desperately needs a tune-up. Might even need a new one. I don't know. Um, but you you need to have those prepared because there's a good chance that a lot of us are going to be experiencing brownouts, blackouts, power outages, that sort of stuff. So I would just be prepared for all of that, including having your food supplies, what have you. All right. What do we have here? Hmm. Okay. Let's talk about Joe Biden's stimulus. Okay. This is one of my favorite things to do under Obama, too. The You know, the shovel-ready thing where there wasn't anything that was actually shovel-ready. They were fake. There wasn't any shovel-ready anything. Well, let's take a look at um, the cost of the stimulus. Remember they had that big $800 billion stimulus that you all thought was was going to kill off the country? This is their $500 one, too. It was like a $500 one and $800 billion. $500 billion, $800 billion. And everybody was convinced that we could not sustain that that type of, of spending. And, of course, we just, you know, we absorbed it just fine. And now we wish for the days of $500 billion in spending. But um, one of the things that we would routinely find is that any job saved and or created, because that was always the famous line, we saved and or created. They didn't create any jobs. They they would pretend they saved a lot of jobs in the Obama stimulus. Now, let's take a look at, and the Obama stimulus was a continuation of the, of the Bush stimulus. It was just, you know, basically the same policy. The federal stimulus program is costing taxpayers $850,000 per job saved, according to a new study. Heck yeah. Cool. Biden's multi-trillion dollar stimulus legislation, the American Rescue Plan, which has been a miserable failure, may go down as one of the biggest failures in history. It has failed to produce the promised jobs. Of course, we went over the jobs numbers. Still less people at work right now than pre-pandemic. It wasted countless billions and worsened inflation. Now, a new study reveals yet another way the behemoth stimulus effort has failed. Remember, the legislation allocated an astonishing $350 billion, roughly $2,400 per federal taxpayer to bailing out state and local government. In the Democrats telling, this money was necessary because local governments were cash-strapped from the pandemic and needed help to avoid laying off frontline emergency responders. Now, we told you at that time that that was bullcrap. We went through all of the, the monies on this thing and the budgets and everything else, and this is a continuation of an effort by the Democrats to get their, their sweetheart plans and stuff like that funded and pension liability paid down and everything else. This is never designed to save any jobs. This was always a lie. Now that's them saying, I know I just told you that, but that's them saying because the expected state revenue shortfall never actually happened. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the unnecessary stimulus money sent to state governments has proven laughably ineffective. Remember, a lot of this was they were projecting massive shortfalls 
because the economy was closed down. Wasn't any shortfalls. It was weird, right? <laughs> no shortfalls. The, the government still made theirs. Um, and this was passed on the assumption that there would be these shortfalls and would cover those shortfalls. But those shortfalls never did materialize. So this is basically free money to their pet projects, to their political allies, and what have you. So a new NBER study by Jeffrey Clemens, Philip G. Hoxie, and Stan Vogger, or Vuger, estimates that the program spent roughly $855,000 for every one year of employment that it preserved. So the Fed spent nearly a million bucks for every job that they, quote, protected for an entire year. Now that is eight to ten times as much as these jobs will actually pay. The experts also find that the stimulus initiative had a zero, near zero impact on national income and economic growth and modest if any spillover effects into onto the broader economy so even they're even saying that we're not even going to tell you this hurt this economy the economy okay we're saying that really didn't have any effect didn't help it didn't really hurt it so the translation here is the federal government basically wasted billions of dollars to protect laughably few government jobs at wildly inefficient rate with basically zero stimulated stimulative effect on the economy yeah isn't that nice so uh, that's brad palumbo by the way brad palumbo's great you don't know uh, Brad Pitt. So yeah, not not great. Eight hundred and fifty-five thousand dollars to protect jobs that really didn't need any protecting to begin with. And we were trying to warn you: this is a giant bill of goods. wasn't really going to do what was supposed to, what they advertised. Because again, none of these stimulus packages ever do. Bush's didn't. Obama's didn't. Biden's didn't. None of them ever do it. So here we are with all of this additional debt. We're going to be running these deficits going up because Biden's still out there. We, we played a good video on the early show today. Biden's still out there telling you that he cut the deficit. No, he didn't. Deficits are going up. But, you know, at least uh, at least people whose jobs were never in jeopardy to begin with have the peace of mind of knowing that their their job that was never in jeopardy of going away was saved at the rate of, of $855,000. If I were one of those employees, I'd be like, hey, I want I want my take of the $855K that you spent to save my job because I only get paid like $70,000, $80,000 government work. I'm assuming government worker, you know, 80, 80 grand, something like that on average. So your taxpayer dollars at, at work, that's going to have no, no impact whatsoever in the future. On, on inflation or the economy. Not not whatsoever. Nothing. Totally fine. Go to rumble.com slash Casey the host. Rumble.com slash Casey the host. Hit that subscribe button. Follow me on Truth Social at Casey the host as well. And of course, uh, tell all of your friends about it. And keep an eye on social media for the Daily Show prep today. The link doesn't go to the old website. It's to the new one. I want to check that out. More coming up. News Talk 95.3. Michiana's News Channel, MNC News Time is 431. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations, creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that last a life. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Please go to, what time is it? 437? Yeah, go to RB Car Company, rbcarcompany.com. Of course, if you go buy a vehicle from them, let them know that I sent you. All right, two things, and then we'll get into what's happening with your kid in school here, actually everywhere, but specifically here. And if you're asking, is here on the Indiana or Michigan side of the border, the answer to that is yes. So story number one, it is official. No longer do we have competing polls. It is official. Joe Biden is now the most unpopular second-year president in recorded history. Youch. That, uh, that sucks for him. I mean... For me, not so much. Joe Biden has crossed another major milestone. The former vice president is now the lowest rated second year POTUS ever. According to polling aggregate site 538, which again is run by Nate Silver, a liberal, which has a hard left bent on its editorial side. Biden is now the most unpopular 
former vice president in recorded history at this point in his tenure. Just in his second year, he is more unpopular than any of his predecessors were polling, where polling data exists, stretching back to 90 years ago. Now, you need to understand something. Like Real Clear Politics, 538 does an aggregate of every poll done. So while we've been giving you some of the polling data on Biden being at 32, which for the record is Trump's lowest, um, there's some polls that'll have him at 33 or 34, maybe 35. Others will have him at 32, but the average has been like 32, 33 or whatever. But this is an aggregate as well of all of those polls. And it is now the lowest polled POTUS ever at this point in their presidency. Next, it's not news, it's CNN. We mentioned them earlier when we talked about Tubin. Of course, Tubin is the guy who diddled himself on camera at a work meeting and got indefinitely suspended but brought him back. And Tubin is he's being floated as one of those names that might not be there in the near future. So people have started to notice there's a weird pattern over at CNN lately. Some of the people at CNN that you all know and love suddenly have started actually doing some news work, and people are getting a little weirded out by it. Like, Dana Bash. She used to do news work. She's always been biased, but she used to do news work. News work and now she's gotten away from that. Suddenly she's going back to doing news work. And there's been a couple of people on the network who have actually asked really good questions. And they've challenged the Biden administration narrative a couple of times. It's very rare still, but it did happen. And a lot of people are wondering why. Well, remember, Time Warner is taking them over. The guy that runs the Discovery Division is expected to handle CNN. And they said that they wanted to get away from this opinion stuff. They wanted to get away from hard left-wing stuff. And they wanted to go straight news. That was what they were going to do. Well, it seems like maybe, perhaps, that is starting to emanate in some of the programs as people are desperately trying to keep their jobs. Unfortunately, it looks like a lot of people are out. Now, we don't have a concrete, hard list here. But what I can tell you once again in their ratings which are horrible they're down like 67 percent from the beginning like it's insane how much ratings they've lost so cnn is averaging just four hundred and eighty thousand total day viewership yuck that's that's real bad so they're anticipating that several people will be let go brian stelter is the first name to be floated of course most people know that brian stelter is not very bright shouldn't have a job in the media anyway Uh, We think that he had, this is my assumption here, based on his old website, I think Brian Stelter had something on somebody and got himself a job. That's what I think ended up happening. Uh, What He he used to do these, um, who's the uh, celebrity, the really flamboyant celebrity, you two are young, Perez Hilton. Thank you very much for nothing, young people. Perez Hilton. He used to be kind of like that, but like less like clowny, okay? Uh, He's changed that. He's now more clowny than Perez Hilton. But back in the day, he wasn't like that. So I think he ended up getting some information on somebody, and he he was able to land himself a job by doing that. But his name got floated this week as being gone as as little in as little as days, not weeks, as little as days. So the assumption is, and we don't have any concrete confirmation of this, but the assumption is that Brian Stelter's out at CNN. That has been the assumption from the very beginning. Uh, but you also have some other people out there. Tubin um, again liability, very problematic. How could you have any credibility with a guy who got caught doing that on a Zoom meeting in front of his coworkers? And I know that he didn't think that anybody was watching, but even the way they brought him back to the network, right? He had his indefinite leave of absence and they brought him back and they sat him down with, was it Dana Bash? They sat him down with a woman and she's like, yeah, we got to talk about you diddling yourself in front of me on camera. (laughs) He's just got this, this look of shame on his face. 
It was one of the most awkward and cringe moments in in all of cable news history. Instant credibility issues with him anyway. And then he says really bad things like, hey, you know, um, places that don't have a public school that can now send your kid not to just private school, but a religious private school somehow violates the establishment clause. This is not a serious person. Okay. Uh, Primetime Fox is still the cable news ratings king, averaging 2.6 million viewers or just a 14% decline over the weeks leading into Biden's inauguration. Meanwhile, CNN's viewership catered uh, cratered to just over 733,000 on average, roughly 78% decline since January. MSNBC only averaged about 1.4 million viewers during primetime weekday hours. And again, CNN right now, total day, um, yeah, 480,000. It's ugly. It really is ugly. So Discovery Chief David Zaslav, Zaslav? Zaslav, who is widely expected to assume stewardship of CNN after its merger with Warner Media is complete, has kept his public comments on the failing news network close to the vest. When asked by Deadline what he thinks will happen with Jeff Zucker, he said, Jeff's a good friend and I like him a lot. And then we know what happened to Jeff Zucker. Jeff Zucker disappeared. He went away. <laughs> A Massive sex scandal took Cuomo with him. And, and Cuomo might have been one to survive because Cuomo was their highest rated show, believe it or not. I know some people are going, what? Cuomo was their highest rated show? Yeah, and it was bad. So lots of names getting floated around here. Um, most people are assuming a cost is going to go. Stelter is going to go. Um, you might keep Anderson Cooper, maybe. Anderson Cooper used to do straight news, and he got away from that. Um, so we're not exactly sure, but we're expecting that there's going to be a pretty big blow up at CNN very soon. And we've already noticed a change in the way that CNN does things on the network. So keep an eye on that. The next thing that we want to talk about after the news break here. So for those of you who have kids in, in public school, you probably had to bring home the, the Scholastic Book Club, right? Scholastic Book Club, you come home, you buy all the books. Well, the Scholastic Book Club is all engaged in Pride Month. It has some parents concerned based on some of the reading material that is available. We'll go over that coming up. Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. All right, Scholastic, the children's book Place. I don't are they actually a publisher? I don't know if they are. Maybe the world's largest publisher of children's books with partnerships in thousands of schools and a provider of literacy curriculum, Scholastic, is pushing, well, Real News Michiana calls it smut onto young kids to celebrate Pride Month in a social media post made at the beginning of June and since promoted through a paid campaign this month, Scholastic wrote, celebrate LGBTQIA plus. Hashtag Pride Month with new and award-winning books for kids and teens. Hashtag Read with Pride. Uh, the post includes a link to books targeted to children to celebrate Pride Month. The literature is targeted to kids as young as three years old. Now, again, um, one of the big concerns for parents about this is not that you're dealing with, with you know, the subject of homosexuality per se. is that a lot of the material that is designed for younger kids is really inappropriate. And it's stuff that will happen later in life with those discussions, but when you're talking about young children, not always the most appropriate. Scholastic is also well known for its celebrated book fairs held at elementary schools across the country where children purchase books without the supervision of their parents. Uh, Sometimes they have PTA volunteers there. Sometimes they don't. There was always PTA volunteers. We had it when I was a kid. So you had your teacher, the PTA, and everything else. I don't know if it's done the same. I've heard a couple where you just kind of go to the library and the librarian kind of steers that. So it might just depend on where you are. I'm not sure. So anyway, um, Clifton French said they looked into several of the promoted books, many romanticized sex and transgenderism in children. They talked about one book titled Heartstopper, 
It's about a young high school boy who has a crush on a rugby player at his school. The two become friends and eventually romantic as, quote, they come to understand the surprising and delightful ways in which love works. Heartstopper is targeted at children as young as 12 years old. Another book targeted at 12-year-olds is titled The Girl from the Sea. That is a book about a young girl who has a secret of wanting to kiss another girl and she eventually falls in love with a girl in her town. Quote, everything they're, everything they're each trying to hide will find its way to the surface, whether Morgan is ready or not, according to the description. Uh, in a book titled I Wish You All the Best, a young boy is disowned by his parents for coming out as non-binary. The child eventually moves in with his sister and meets a boy at a new school with whom he falls in love. Now, that book is targeted to uh, children as young as 14 years old. Let's see, we got a one for nine-year-olds. Two young girls are friends in school who fall in love. The description of One True Way reads, Allie and Sam are friends. Allie and Sam are girls. Uh, Allie and Sam are falling for each other. And it's they basically say the novel is, quote, a thoughtful, eye-opening look at tolerance, acceptance, and change. Um, so, again, you know, it... it your kids are going to bring these home for the school year, so just keep an eye on it. And I know some of you have have you know subscriptions and things like that to Scholastic and, and what have you. But you know now now the other thing is that usually you go through these things and your your kid picks out which books they want. You send some money to the school, they order the books. You know a few weeks later you get the books and that sort of thing. We do it too. Everybody everybody kind of does it. Um, but pay closer attention to some of the stuff that's in there now as a parent so you can kind of steer what types of books you want your kid to see to own that sort of thing because if it's making its way in here you assume that's going to make its way in there during the school season as well so that way you as a parent are able to be observant about the materials that you deem acceptable or not acceptable for a child your child's age and again i i'm not your kid's parent. I'm not telling you that this stuff is is wrong or not. You have to determine that, but you should be well aware of this stuff because a lot of these books that we have talked about over the past couple of years that end up in elementary school and middle school are really not appropriate at all. Very graphic imagery, um, graphic drawings, graphic descriptions using words. Some people have, have said that it's, you know, you can't call it pornography if it's just letters. That's not true. And everybody knows that that's not. But at the same time, you as a parent are going to have to be aware that this is the stuff that is out there. So you have to be able to steer your child towards the things that, that are okay, steer them away from things that are not okay. And with Scholastic, you're going to have to pay attention because you assume that this stuff is now going to be a part of their regular pamphlets that they send home and, and what have you. And make sure that your child knows that they can discuss anything that they need to discuss with you at home just in case something like this comes up at school because... It, increasingly, it is coming up at school. Uh, it has now become a routine thing on the early show that we do. They're totally not coming for your kids. And we will have several stories where some teacher has preyed upon children in various ways. We had another two of them just today. So it's a routine, ongoing thing. It's not a once in a blue moon sort of a thing. It's one that I can give you a couple of examples of teachers preying upon kids Every single day. And I'm not just talking about actually assaulting children. I'm talking about the grooming type behavior, exposing children to certain things. If uh, if your kid doesn't want to be exposed to a certain thing, we'll excuse them from the class. But the, the example today was a music teacher who wanted to use Elton John and Freddie Mercury. He wanted to do a lesson plan on Elton John and Freddie Mercury and make it all about their sexuality and not about their music. And you can opt your kid out, and your kid can go to another music teacher's class for the day, but you have to be prepared for your kid to get bullied as a result of this, and you better have some answers for them if you're not a tolerant household. That's basically how this teacher had phrased this. So you got to keep an eye on this stuff. It's one of the reasons that we got uh, we got my oldest kid out of public school, officially went through today, uh, officially in private school now. So you got to pay very, very close attention to what's happening there. 
And Scholastic has been one of those institutions. Parents want their kids to read. If their kid gets gets a Scholastic catalog, they bring it home. They're excited about those books. The parent signs off on it. Maybe they don't pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to what your kids are looking at so you can raise your kids the way that you deem fit to raise your own children. You got more coming up. News Talk 95. Wait, hold on a second. I'm at the end of the hour. I thought I was on my half hour, man. Sorry. No, I was going to cut out. I was I was going to the Impress commercial. I was out of here. I didn't realize I had another minute. I was thinking it was 4 to 30. Sorry about that. Wasn't planning on cutting and running that way. But uh, So, again, keep an eye on this stuff just because you never know what your kids are going to be exposed to. Most of these teachers are starting to do this in secret now. They're bragging about doing it in secret in private message forums to each other. Zoom meetings to each other and also on TikTok. Luckily, there have been a lot of teachers who do not approve. And those teachers are the ones that are getting the message out. Hey, this is what my my coworkers are doing behind your back. Now, the other story that we talked about today was a teacher who teaches four-year-olds that they can swap gender. I'm not kidding every single day and she bragged about it and read from a book that is designed for four-year-olds which you can probably get in scholastic that teaches kids they can change their gender every single day or every single week if they really wanted to it's entirely up to them as four-year-olds my five-year-old said she wanted to marry the dog two days ago so yeah doesn't work that way Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Hendrickson. Do you want to thank R&B Car Company locations in South Bend and Warsaw? R&B Car Company are your used car experts. Kind of dovetailing a little bit on the the last topic before the news break. This is a story that's been floating around for a couple of days now. I've had it in my, my stuff. I just haven't really talked about it yet. A bishop has declared that a central Massachusetts school may no longer identify itself as Catholic because it refuses to remove Black Lives Matter and pride flags that it began flying on campus last year, arguing that the flags embody specific agendas and ideologies that contradict Catholic social and moral teaching. That's Bishop Robert McManus of the Diocese of Worcester. I issued the decree on Thursday last week, punishing the Nativity School of Worcester, a tuition-free private middle school that serves about, uh, well, 60 boys from under-resourced communities. So there you go. I mean, look, this is the type of stuff that's going to have to happen. If you're not going to adhere to Catholic ideals, then you're not going to be able to call yourself Catholic. It's you know, the church has to stand up for its its values. I'm not Catholic. You know, I don't really have a dog in this fight, but it doesn't make any sense to have, oh, I don't know, a Catholic university where most of the faculty completely shuns Catholicism. Doesn't make any sense. Nancy Pelosi running out there and, and saying, I support late term abortions, but I'm a good Catholic too. Like in the next sentence, like, no, you can't do that. That isn't how it works. Yeah, you're either Catholic or you're not. You, you don't get to decide which of the Catholic faith you like and, and which you don't. And it just doesn't work that way. If it's if Catholicism isn't for you, find something else. There's nothing wrong with that. You're allowed to not be Catholic if you don't like their teaching. That's okay. You don't have to be Catholic just because your whole family's always been Catholic. You're allowed to be something else. But it's always bizarre to me to watch this stuff just kind of play out that way. You you want to be a Catholic school, but then you want to just completely trash the faith of Catholicism. You have to expect at some point in time that more bishops are going to fight back against this. So good for him. 50 House Republicans on Monday signed a letter urging former Vice President Joe Biden to end consideration of banning commercial production of certain types of ammunition at the Lake City Armory Ammunition Plant in Missouri. The factory, which is owned by the Department of Defense, has allowed private contractors over the years to operate the plant and produce 
5.56 ammo, which is used in AR-15 rifles uh, for commercial sale that exceed U.S. military needs. Okay, The letter, which is spearheaded by Representative Vicki Hartzler and Sam Graves of Missouri, said the Biden administration is trying to circumvent Congress by banning ammunition for the popular firearm, severely limiting the commercially available 5.56 ammunition, which is most popularly used in modern sporting rifles, is effectively a politically sanctioned semi-automatic rifle ban. I tried telling you all to learn how to reload many years ago. This blatantly infringes on the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution by limiting law-abiding gun owners' ability to legally purchase or use lawful semi-automatic rifles, according to the members of Congress. Might be stretching just a little bit there, but I appreciate the spirit anyway. The lawmakers wrote that the plant currently produces a significant portion of this type of 5.56 ammunition for the commercial market and allows the operating contractor to maintain capacity and keep the facility at a high state of readiness at no cost to the government. So, zero cost. Taxpayers don't pay for this. Unlike the Pelotons that every congressional member and staffer gets with your taxpayer dollars. If you don't have taxpayer dollars... That is paying for this thing. But uh, you pay for the Pelotons. Additionally, the factory ensures that the Army is ready to ramp up production in the event of national emergency. And members also said the ammunition production ban will compromise Army readiness by further delaying the deployment of the Army's next generation squad weapon, the NGSW. This decision will result in the intermediate termination, the immediate termination, excuse me, of up to 500 highly skilled employees and undermine the facility's ability to hire and retain the skilled workforce needed to carry out the contract with the Department of Defense. So they're also making the case here that uh, you're also going to eliminate 500 specialist jobs here. And then if we ever need to ramp up ammo production in this country because of a national emergency, you're going to have to now train a bunch of people to do it. And that's going to lead to some some quality loss while that is actually happening. Valid point, actually. Additionally, the decision will exacerbate an already serious shortage of ammunition in the commercial market currently facing law-abiding gun owners, severely limiting the commercially available 5.56 ammunition, which is most popularly used in modern sporting rifles, is effectively a political, a politically sanctioned semi-automatic rifle ban. Well, yeah, um, I mean, that's the goal. The goal is to limit the amount of ammo available to the public. That is the goal. Winchester Repeating Arms Company is the private contractor that produces the ammunition at the Lake City Armory Ammunition Plant. So Winchester notified the National Shooting Sports Foundation last Wednesday that the Department of Defense was considering prohibiting the production of 5.56 ammo at the plant. Well, so they're going to do everything they can to limit the amount of ammo that is available. So even if you own them, you won't have any ammo for them until, of course, some enterprising individuals, probably many, decide to uh, hop up and start going into ammo production. Obviously, this isn't the only place that makes this ammo, but it's a big one. Now, there's something else happening, and this is not the first time that this has happened. This happened under the Obama administration as well. I want you to pay attention to this. This involves the IRS and ammo. The IRS, under Biden, is buying up ammunition in bulk. On Saturday, Florida Representative Matt Gates told Breitbart that the government entity had spent $700,000 purchasing ammo between March and June 1st, 700 grand. I am told that if you stockpile more than 100 rounds of ammo, you are an extremist. That's what I am told. 700 grand from March to June 1st. That's a lot of ammo. Now, of course, a lot of people are asking why. This came up in the Obama years. Many of you might remember 
the IRS started stockpiling ammo. They weren't the only federal bureaucracy that was doing it. Several others did it as well. They went on a buying spree, and you couldn't get any in the in the civilian markets. Agents in the IRS Criminal Investigation Department are armed with weapons and therefore do need ammo. That being the case, they do not need 700 grand worth of it. Which is true. Well, not yet. <laughs> In addition, a search of usaspending.gov. This is a, for those of you who don't know, this is a website that you can go and you can track like how the government is spending everything and it breaks it down by category. I've talked about it before. Really, really easy website for you to navigate and I think an invaluable resource for you to understand where your taxpayer dollars are going because occasionally you'll see some of the dumb stuff that kind of pops up in it. And I don't pay as much attention to it as I used to, but I used to get a ton of great show prep off of the stuff that was you know, being bought with your taxpayer dollars on that thing. So anyway, usaspending.gov showed numerous ammunition purchases made by the IRS over the past few years, ranging from purchases as low as $3,201 to as high as $92,263. The IRS has been doing this for some time. According to a 2019 report from Forbes, at the time, the IRS had 4,487 guns and over 5 million rounds of ammo. So they had almost 4,500 guns and they had uh, 5.062 million rounds of ammo. That's a lot of range time for the IRS. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I don't know how many gunfights the IRS gets into, but that is a massive quantity of ammunition. Now, some of you might be asking, what is the the type of ammo that they have in their inventory? This is a great question. They have lots of kinds of ammo, including ammo for, quote, fully automatic machine guns. You know, the, the guns that they tell you that you can go buy at the uh, corner store. <laughs> of course, Forbes Magazine did an investigation from 2009 to 2011. IRS agents fired their guns accidentally more times than they did intentionally. Tuesday, I'm going to let that sit. Between 2009 and 2011, the IRS fired their guns accidentally more than intentional meaning they don't shoot that much. When they do shoot, it's likely an accidental discharge not because they fired it on purpose. How many of you have accidentally shot your gun more than you have intentionally fired it? Because this is a thing at the IRS. Those agents accidentally discharged their weapons a total of 11 times in two years. That's not even one bullet a month. Not even for one year. That's two years here. The IRS's own website states that CI is comprised of nearly 3,500 employees worldwide. There's no way that a few thousand agents need that much ammo, especially considering that armed CIA agents rarely discharge their weapons. Yeah, so why are they buying it? I mean, I have some theories. I've given you some theories in the past, but I'll just let you sit with it during the commercial break. Why do you think the IRS's tactical teams are buying so much ammo when they don't ever fire it? What do you think, uh, what do you think that's about? <laughs> More coming up, News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. And then some interesting theories from some of you as to why the IRS needs so much ammo. Very interesting. Uh, now, Matt Gates did give his idea for why the IRS is buying so much ammo, considering their agents never fire their guns. He says they're buying all of the ammo so that there isn't any left for you. And like I said, the IRS went on a buying spree during the Obama administration as well. And there's a lot of questions about it. Why are you guys buying so much ammo? You guys don't conduct these types of raids. Yeah, you have some armed officers. We get that they need training and what have you. We understand that. But you don't need 7 million rounds of ammo plus and continuing to buy more doesn't make any sense. Uh, so anyway, Matt Gates said this, there is concern that this is part of a broader effort to have an ent- any entity in the federal government buy up ammo to reduce the amount of ammunition that is in supply, while at the same time making it harder to produce ammo 
which goes with the other story about the facility owned by the Department of Defense that Winchester can make 5.56 ammo with. So, again, this is this is the plot, right? This is the plot. And, of course, one of the other things we talk about with guns is red flag laws. And there's a lot of people out there doing fake back checks, telling you red flag laws don't violate your due process. Of course they do. In the United States of America, you're innocent until what? Proven guilt, not with a red flag law. You're guilty until proven innocent. That violates your due process. Somebody says something about you, they come and take your guns away, and... If you're lucky, you can fight to get them back. But that's not always the case. So I have a cautionary tale. This is a 12-year tale. There are real examples of red flag law abuse that are happening right now. We'll probably pepper some of those in as this debate continues to grow. Certainly going to be doing that. But this one is an example of a story where there wasn't red flag law abuse, but there could have been if it was applicable. I want you to listen to this story. Somebody decided to go ahead and, and post all of this. Let me tell you a story. Some of you may have heard this before. Others of you witnessed parts of it in real time. It is a cautionary tale, and it runs up against the push by 11 GOP senators to imperil my natural right to defense protected by the Constitution. In 2006, an adjunct university professor entered the comment section of my blog, ProteinWisdom.com. She began debating other commentators and quickly found herself out of her depth. This happens frequently on my social media. I can't recall the specifics of the post, but her arguments were decidedly decidedly leftist. I went out, uh, went out for a time, and by the time I came back, this left-wing professor of risk management had become so unglued that she was threatening my then two-year-old son. Fox News ran a piece on it after Michelle Malkin highlighted it on her vent for hotair.com. The professor was asked to step down from her position. She was she has not held a job since, living off severance and disability checks along with support from a wealthy family. Her public disgrace caused her some immediate introspection, but sadly, that didn't last. As her career came, her career came apart and her relationships began to crumble, she picked my family, in particular my son, to blame for her self-inflicted travails. She began posting pornographic entries about a two-year-old boy. She began making public accusations that my wife and I were molesting my son. Pretending to be a reporter, she contacted my mother, asking for comment about my impending arrest for child molestation. She dug up my father's obituary and went went on and on about sexualized tykes and various other things that I can't say. Okay, We'd received an order of protection against her, but because she lived out of state, the law couldn't touch her. She'd begun attacking the lawyers who'd helped me or, or represented me. She attacked the judges. All of this continued until right around 2014 when a detective in my small town found a legal means to begin charges, citing an online harassment law that has been passed in the intervening years. To make a long story short, this woman was able to evade consequences for 12 years. She reported me to Department of Homeland Security as a terror threat, claiming that I was making ricin. She also posted this on a community message board, warning parents to keep their kids away from our house on Halloween. Because again, he's making ricin. She's been able to find where we lived using voter records. She called the surrounding schools, warning them that I was a pedophile and that my son was in danger. She contacted child services. She contacted my wife's place of employment. Ultimately, after years of effort, we were finally able to see her convicted on multiple felony charges. This happened after Colorado had her extradited twice. In August, she likely will be paroled after serving two years of a six-year sentence, which means that for 14 years prior to her felony convictions, she had phoned in anonymous tips on me. She may have convinced a judge to file an ex parte order requiring me to surrender my weapons. It took us 14 
15 years to get her convicted and cleared of crimes. Now, again, just imagine what this person could do. And we've seen this in other red flag cases in this country where innocent people have their firearms taken away from them. Of course, getting the firearms back is always the difficult part. The government never wants to do that. Remember when the government had a fake case against the the militia here in Michigan, the Hootery, I think? They accused them of all sorts of domestic terrorist activity. It was all a lie. None of it was true. They seized all of their guns, remember? Well, now they're still in a legal battle to get their guns back because even after they've been totally cleared of any wrongdoing, the government still wasn't giving them their guns back. And the government argued that they shouldn't give them the guns. Red flag laws are very, very dangerous. I understand why people want them. I understand that there are, again, red flags sometimes. I get that. Boy, is it a dangerous, slippery slope. Got more coming up. Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. MNC News time is 531. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations. Creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that last a lifetime. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. All right, let's take a look at the Senate panel advancing this $858 billion bill. So this thing is going to support Ukraine, Taiwan. It boosts munition production. Again, they're trying to kill off the A-10. I don't know why they keep trying to kill off the A-10, but they keep trying to kill off the A-10. It also will require women to register for the draft. Now, again, this is just a Senate panel, so it's advanced it. The Armed Services Committee, on a strong bipartisan 23-3 to vote, has sent to the full Senate its version of the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual bill that lets uh, sets policy for the Department of Defense. So it calls for $857.6 billion in defense spending, a $45 billion plus up over the budget requested by the Biden administration, largely to cover the effects of inflation, also to address the need to replace munitions that were sent to Ukraine, and provide additional resources for unfunded priorities of U.S. combatant commanders. Uh, the committee held a robust debate, came together to support a bill that will help safeguard the nation against a range of evolving threats while supporting our troops both on and off the battlefield. That is the chairman, Senator Jack Reed, Democrat of Rhode Island. Um, he also joined with, um, you know, again, bipartisan uh, effort here. So there's about $817.33 billion for the Department of Defense, $29.67 billion for the Department of Energy. Uh, so that's, that's where it is. Um, they're authorizing active duty troop strength by service. The Army, 473,000, Navy 354,000, the Marine Corps 177,000, Air Force 325,344, and Special Forces 8,600. Uh, so he says a bunch of stuff in there for Ukraine and Taiwan. The Regarding Taiwan, because uh, it, it will, there's $2.7 billion in new stuff for Ukraine that are in there, but um, you know, again, it's it, it that's what you're going to expect. It's two point seven billion dollars more. We're giving money to Ukraine left and right. But for Taiwan, uh, the bill would make it the official policy of the United States to maintain the ability of the U.S. armed forces to deny deny any attack against Taiwan. OK, so that's good. It's what you want. Uh, women in the draft. This is considered by many to be controversial. And as I've said, generally speaking, uh, Republicans and conservatives oppose women being drafted. I take the position of let's do it and show feminist what for. That's my position. Is that fair to all of you other ladies out there who are reasonable and not crazy third wave feminists? No, it's not. But sorry, you're casualties. Just how it is. They want equal rights? Cool. You register for the draft. Suddenly they don't want equal rights anymore. (laughs) Everybody is talking about women getting into... 
you know, breaking the ceiling and the patriarchy and everything else. Well, there you go. There's a military. You can break the ceiling there in the patriarchy. So I, that's just my position. In general, do I want women to be drafted? No. In general, I don't want anybody to be drafted. Luckily, we have an effective fighting force that that's very, very limited um, circumstances where that would be needed. Of course, those would be catastrophic anyway. But nonetheless, uh, still like the idea just as a point of contention. All right. What else do we have here? Yeah, the A-10. All right, the perennial battle to <laughs> to eliminate the A-10 Warthog almost always wins. The Warthog almost always wins. Uh, for years now, the Air Force has been trying to retire the aircraft, uh, but it keeps it keeps winning. The troops keep wanting it back because it still does an amazing job. And and honestly, it is so suited for today's mission and today's battlefield. It just doesn't make any sense for more people to get rid of it. But they are. Uh, they're ordering more F-35s. They're holding off an F-22s in this thing. There's a bunch of other stuff. I'll put it in the daily show prep for you. We got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. Newstock 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Once again, I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. All right. Uh, you can go online, Truth Social at Casey the Host. I hope that you will uh, follow me over there. That would be a lot of fun. I did talk about this today on the early show, but I, I went into more detail than I'm going to be able to go into right now. Let me just ask you a question, especially if you got kids in the car. This would be a good like history question for them. What was the last state in the United States, to have slaves and to abolish slavery. What was the last state to have slaves and to abolish slavery? Cue Jeopardy music. What do you think? Ben, what do you think? Texas? No, not Texas. I know Juneteenth is all about Texas, but the reason I bring this up is Bill Nye, the not-so-smart, not-so-science guy, because he's not a scientist. Bill Nye, uh, he did a, a little tweet. He goes, the United States that we know today was built with the labor of enslaved black Americans. And again, it's a myth that slavery built America. That's been debunked uh, by historians for many, many years. I digress. The last were not freed officially until the 19th of June, 1865. Let us celebrate and never forget. Okay, so he's saying that Juneteenth is celebrating the last freed slaves. They were freed on the 19th of June, 1865. That was in Texas. And then he's holding up a constitution of the United States. So um, lots of major errors in this particular post. Uh, first of all, there were a lot of people were posting there was two union states that still had slaves afterwards. That's true. There's actually there's three union states that actually had slavery after the South did. You had Delaware. Huh? Joe Biden. Huh? Delaware. Uh, you had Kentucky. You had another one. New Jersey. Now, Kentucky and Delaware didn't end slavery until December of 1865, which is after June of 1865. I know we celebrate Juneteenth, but New Jersey didn't ban slavery until January of 1866 when they ratified the 13th Amendment and they were the last state to do so. At the time, they had 16 slaves and about 100 apprentices for life and they also had about 600 indentured servants so there you go new jersey was the last have a great night see you tomorrow